Christ is for everyone. A podcast about celebrating the goodness of life in the love of Christ. The Nicene Creed. What do Christians believe? Lesson 1. Why the Creed? The first stage of the development of the Creed was at the Council of Nicaea in 325. So there they had a gathering, they were debating a question, and they developed this creed which summarizes the conclusions that they came to, right, about the question, how does Christ relate to the Father? How, what is the relationship between the Son and the Father? And then in the year 381, they held the council at Constantinople. And this time they asked the question, how does the Holy Spirit relate to the Father and to the Son? Uh, and then at the Council of Constantinople, the microphone? You're on in the church. Oh, I see. <laughs> they can hear me over there. <laughs> so in the, in the Council of Constantinople in 381, they came up with this version of the creed, which has an extended discussion about the Holy Spirit, and this is the one that we recite in church. Okay, so the creed that we recite in church is very old, right, from the, from the year 381. That's older than anybody I know. But it's not as old as the New Testament, right? From the end of the New Testament until the creed uh, at Constantinople, there are 300 years basically that pass. And imagine how much America has changed in 300 years, right? There's 300 years difference between us and, you know, the, the Puritans or the people who landed at Plymouth and so on. It's a very different world. So we have to ask the question, why the creed? What good is the creed? Why shouldn't we just have the Bible and no creed? Right? This is uh, one question that somebody might ask. Um, and it's a reasonable question, because even in the history of the church, all the most important theologians of the church all agreed that theology is only as good as its scriptural basis. Your theology is only as good as the arguments that you can bring from the Bible. Now, this changes over time, especially in the Middle Ages um, and in, um, uh, especially in, uh, in the, the early and, and Middle Ages in the Eastern uh, Christian world, there was a greater emphasis put on the tradition of the church uh, because they found that it was not easy to justify everything that the medieval Catholic Church, for example, taught on the basis of Scripture. And so they said, no, you need Scripture and tradition. These are two two things that go together. Uh, the tradition of the church is equally necessary and then the scripture is, uh, must be read in light of the tradition. But historically, most of the most important theologians in the earliest period of the church did not think like that. They thought that the church's teaching corresponded exactly with what scripture teaches and the church didn't teach anything beyond scripture. So we have to ask this question. We have this creed that we recite every Sunday and at the same time, the most important theologians in the history of the church say that the church teaches nothing that cannot be found in scripture. So the way that I'm going to be approaching this question of the creed over the next 10 weeks is to show the creed's basis in scripture. I want to show how the creed that we recite every Sunday is nothing but a very succinct summarization and exposition of the basic teaching of scripture. Okay, so we do not, when we say the creed, we are not saying something alongside scripture we are not adding to scripture. We are not doing anything that is somehow foreign to what scripture teaches. We are trying to summarize very succinctly what is the basic and essential message of scripture. And that's what we try to do uh, when we recite the creed. So this first week, this first uh, Bible study, I'm going to be asking the question, why the creed? Why should we have the creed at all? The way that I want to begin discussing this issue is by considering the, 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 the topic of unity. All right, unity is one of the most important themes in the Bible. For example, in Psalm 133, the first verse says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. This was an idea that was very important to the Old Testament. God created one people of Israel. Right? He said there was one, person, one people group, 12 tribes. Of course, God wants unity, but we tend to fracture and break apart because we disagree with each other and we can't get along. So even though God created one people of Israel when he redeemed them from Egypt, he brought them out of slavery, nevertheless, after a few generations, they split apart into two kingdoms. 
um, and then they went their separate ways. We find also in the New Testament that the unity of God's people is a central concern. So to this extent, let's read from the Gospel according to John, chapter 17. This is what is called the high priestly prayer. It's the prayer that Christ uh, prays before he dies. So this is the night before he is crucified. And he is praying. He has just finished holding a discourse for his disciples. And he prays. And this prayer is very long. We're not going to read the whole of it. We're going to start at verse 20. Okay, so I would like... Um, I would like someone to read from verse 20 to 23. So somebody read John 17, 20 to 23. This is Christ praying to the Father on the, day be on the night before he is killed. Go ahead. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through the word, their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you loved me. So notice how Christ is praying to God. He says that between... Him and the Father, there is a unity, there's a oneness, a fellowship, or a friendship, we might say. Fellowship is kind of an old-timey word. Friendship is a nice modern equivalent. There is a friendship between the Father and the Son, so to speak, and they exist in perfect unity. There is not the will of the Father and the will of the Son against each other. Christ says, for example, that I, own, I have come to do the will of him who sent me. Between the Father and the Son, there's a perfect unanimity and a unity. And Christ prays that just as between the Father and the Son there's a perfect unanimity and concord and agreement, so also there might be among those who will believe in him through the word of his apostles. So what Christ wants is that just as he and the Father are one and they live in a perfect unity, so also everybody who believes in Christ through the word of his apostles whom he sent into the world, they also should be one. And he says that this is even so important that they might be one, that the world may know that you have sent me. So this is interesting. The disciples of Christ, those persons who believe in him, those persons who have heard the gospel and have come to believe in Christ, they have to be one so that the world, people on the outside, people who do not come to church like us on Sundays and who do not believe in Christ, so that they might believe that Christ was sent into the world by God and that they also were sent by Christ. So we see that Christ prays that his followers exist in unity. Right? He, wants, <clears throat> he wants a unity among those persons who will follow him, his people. And if we turn also to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. So let's start with verse 7, actually. Here, Paul, in the beginning of this letter, is um, praising God. Now, this is called a doxology, right? Because he is speaking glory and praise to God. And this whole first portion of the letter to the Ephesians is just doxological. He is just saying, blessed be, the, uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly places, and so on and so forth. So all he's doing is praising God. And notice, among all the various things that he praises God for, he says, beginning in verse 7, to verse 10. Let's have someone else read it. Go ahead. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ things in the heavens and things upon the earth in him. Thank you. So notice, Paul here is saying something very radical. He is saying that the purpose for which God has created the world, the purpose for which you and I exist, 
Why is there anything here at all? Why does anything exist at all? He says that the purpose, the plan for the fullness of time, is to unite all things in him, or as in that translation, to sum up all things in him. To unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So we can think about it like this. Why did God create the world? This is a fine philosophical question. Why does anything exist at all? Well, according to Paul, the answer to that question is God created the world so as to establish a fellowship, a unity, a kind of a friendship between everything, a friendship that includes everything between God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and also human beings and the whole created order. God's purpose is to establish a unity. What God wishes is to bring about a unity that includes every person and that is a unity not only among people, but between people and God. He wishes to unite all things and the point, the center point of this unity, just like every center has a, a circle, uh, every circle has a center point. The center point of this unity is Christ, the Son of God. This is what God wants. He wants to accomplish a unity that encompasses all things, and the center point of that unity is Christ. So we see from the prayer of Christ, and we also see from the teaching of Paul in this letter, that it is critically important to God that there exists unity. Now, there are some qualifications to be made here. Unity does not mean, for example, uniformity. All right? The fact that, for example, my wife and I are united and that we are one as a, as a married couple does not mean that we are exactly the same in every way. I like certain things. She likes other things. I have a certain personality. She has a different personality. But from the fact that we are not uniform, it doesn't follow that we aren't one, that we aren't in agreement and that we don't have a common purpose. So also, I don't think that... I think, I think it's enough just to look around and you can tell that God does not care for uniformity, per se, because Arizona looks like this, you know, where my family is from and Romania looks a different way, where some of you grow up probably looks differently. The world doesn't look the same in every place. Um, people are not the same everywhere. Not every child is born with exactly the same personality. So God appreciates diversity. He doesn't, he doesn't mind that people are different from each other. Uh, he does not want uniformity so much as unity. Unity is something different from uniformity. We can all be unified, even if we're different from each other in various ways. So long as we have a common goal and a common purpose and some common foundation that serves as the basis for what we do. So this is what God wants. He wants to establish a unity among his people and so also in the whole world. But now let me ask you a question. Are Christians actually unified with each other? No. Are human beings actually unified with each other? No. Israel, in the Old Testament, was that people unified with each other? No. Aren't they constantly fighting about this and that? Yes. For example, if we look at uh, Christianity in the present day, we see division everywhere. All right. First of all, in the 21st century, you have, for example, a distinction between using the term very loosely Protestants and Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. And among the Eastern Orthodox, for example, you have various national churches. They're not all unified with each other. For example, now there is a schism between the Church of Constantinople and the Church of Moscow. Uh, among Roman Catholics, there's all kinds of people. There are very hyper-traditionalist types. There are very liberal kinds of Catholics. Um, you know, there are some Catholics who believe that there is not a valid pope, that there is no bishop of Rome in the actual moment, and some Catholics think that uh, not only is there a bishop of Rome, but that he's the only hope for the church to catch up with the times. You know, these people think that the church has to liberalize some, that it has to change. And then, of course, among Protestants, you have a whole variety of groups. You have Baptists, you have Pentecostals, you have Methodists, you have uh, Lutherans, you have Presbyterians, you have Reformed Baptists, Independent Fundamentalist Baptists, you have, you know, the uh, American Baptists, you have the Southern Baptists, you have... There's a variety of people, and these people all disagree with each other. Right? The things that we do here every Sunday on, at church, some Christians will say we're not doing enough, and some Christians will say we're doing way too much. Right? And even if you go from Anglican church to Anglican church, they're not all the same, and not all Anglicans agree with each other. Right? So, on the one hand, Christ prays that we all be one. And Paul himself teaches that God's purpose for the world is to establish a unity that includes all people, and that is a unity and a harmony of fellowship, or a friendship, if you want, between God and all people. That's what he wants. On the other hand, we have rampant disagreement and difference, and we can't get along with each other. And there are people who are Christians who will not 
have the Eucharist with you here. And if you were to go to their church, they wouldn't give it to you. So what's happened? What's interesting to note is that in spite of the emphasis that is placed on unity in the Bible, the church, God's people, have been afflicted by difference and disunity from the very beginning. Right? This is nothing new. From the very beginning, there were people who disagreed, and there were fights, and there were debates, and there were ruptures and schisms and, and all sorts of nasty things. So, for example, you know, we, can, we can point to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's read verses 10 through 13. Somebody read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. How about you, Darius? Sure. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Paul's, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So notice what happens. Paul is going about his life being an apostle, evangelizing to people, and he has this friend, Chloe, who is one of the teachers in the various churches that he's associated with. And Chloe's people tells him that, hey, look, the people in Corinth, you remember them, you preached the gospel to them, things are bad. Right? The church is divided, there are all these factions, there are these different groups in the church. Some people are saying that they're on your team, some people are saying they're on Peter's team, some, Peter is Cephas, of course, some people are saying they're on team Apollo, some people are saying, no, we belong to Christ. So even from the very beginning, there's something about it. This is one of the ways in which the devil likes to attack God's people. People have been breaking up into teams, according to their preferred teacher. And you kind of have the same thing going on even today. You have the Roman Catholic Church, for example, which says that the Bishop of Rome is the supreme uh, vicar of Christ and the principle of unity of the church, and we belong to him, and therefore we're in the church. Or you have the Eastern Orthodox churches, right, where the conception is different. You have the Holy Fathers, and you have a particular theological tradition that they hold to with all of their life. You have among Protestants various bodies that are basically uh, identified according to a teacher that they thought was particularly important, like the Mennonites or the Lutherans. Um, or you have particular theological ideas like the Baptists or the Methodists and so on, ways that they identify each other. So the same thing was happening here. Just like we have divisions among ourselves and we are all, you know, we have different titles for ourselves according to what identifies us. So also in, in Paul's time, the church in Corinth, I belong to Paul. I belong to Cephas, I belong to Apollos, I belong to Christ. But Paul says, notice, what Paul says is, is very important. He says, is Christ divided? What does that mean? The body, the church, whose body is this? It's the body of Christ. Is it the body of Paul or of Apollos or of Peter? No, it is the body of Christ. Right? He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you that, I, that you should you know, align yourself with me? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So Paul sees a situation of disunity, and he knows exactly how to confront it. He says, hold on a second, what are we here for? What is the most important thing? What actually are we? Are we followers of Paul and of Peter and of Apollos and of Cephas, or are we, follow, are we followers of Christ? Were we baptized in the name of Christ or in the name of Paul? Or was Christ crucified for us or was Paul crucified for us? Obviously Christ. So in a situation where there's disagreement, where there's difference, where there's factions, where there's heresies and schisms, to use you know, the theological terminology, Paul's approach is always to say, hold on a second. Christ is the one who died for us. Christ is the one in whose name we were baptized. Christ is the one uh, uh, whose body we, come, we are a part of. Christ is the principle of unity of the church. Okay, so this is an important lesson to keep in mind because the creed is a way of expressing this point. Christ is the principle of the unity of the church, not some particular teacher, not some particular bishop, not anything like that. Christ is the principle of the unity of the church. And if a person breaks off from Christ, they are outside of the church. Now, this is an important point because this was the way that Paul took in resolving one of the very critical disagreements in early Christianity. 
Okay, the very first generation of Christians were torn apart by this question. All the first Christians were Jews. They were circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law of Moses and the tradition of Abraham. They, you know, were taken to the temple. They performed all the regular sacrifices. They kept the law of Moses. They didn't eat things that were inappropriate and so on. They were Jews. They believed in Christ. Christ came to the Jews. Christ also was circumcised uh, on the eighth day after he was born and he was given the name Jesus then. He also obeyed the law. He says, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I've come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. So Christ also was a Jew, just like them. Christ died. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He poured out the Holy Spirit on the disciples at Pentecost. So up until this point, all of the church, all of this reality of salvation in Christ was limited to the Jews and to people, or at the very least, to, to people who had become Jewish, if they weren't born Jewish. But then something interesting happens. Stephen, the, the proto-martyr, is killed, and the disciples are dispersed into various places outside of Jerusalem, and there they preach the gospel. And what happens is that as they're preaching the gospel following this dispersion, people who are not Jews at all, but who are Gentiles, begin to believe. And they also are converted to Christ and they are baptized. So then there was the question, okay, what are we supposed to do with these people? Because they're not a part of our group. They don't belong to our religion, but they believe in Christ. How to navigate the situation? And on this question, there were two schools of thought in the early church. There were some Christians who, before they became Christians, were a part of the party of the Pharisees, for example. We hear about the Pharisees all the time in the New Testament. In those days, Judaism, just like today in Christianity, we have different denominations. In those days, you had different denominations of Judaism, so to speak. The Pharisees were one group, the Sadducees were another group, the Essenes were another group, and so on. Right? You had different sort of schools of Judaism. And some of the Pharisees became Christians. They, began, they believed in Christ and they became Christians. And these people thought that the Gentile converts to Christianity had to be circumcised and to, begin, and to take up the law of Moses in order for them to be saved. And so we can see their opinion. If you open to Acts chapter 15. Right, this is the, the so-called Council of Jerusalem, the first major council of the church. So let's read the first five verses. The first five verses of uh, Acts chapter 15. Go ahead. Now when it says uh, came down from Judea, so what's happening is that uh, the context here is the church in Antioch, where there had been some Gentiles uh, converted to Christianity. Go ahead. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, through both Phoenicia and Samaria, described in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law. So notice what's happening. Of course, in the olden days, uh, circumcision was a distinctly Jewish practice. Other people groups didn't have that practice. So one of the ways in which a person would have to, one thing that a person would have to do in becoming a Jew, if they were born, let's say, a Syrian or a, a Roman or a Greek or whatever, would be to be circumcised. And these people were saying that these new Gentile converts who are not Jewish, who don't have our habits, who are of different people groups, they have to be circumcised if they're going to be a part of our group and to benefit from the salvation of Christ. Now, <clears throat> why did they think this? Why did they believe this? Were they totally irrational or... Not exactly. They had some good reasons for believing this. For example, if we look in Genesis chapter 17. Okay, God makes a covenant with Abraham. A covenant... What is a covenant? Sometimes we hear that word. A covenant basically is an agreement, a kind of a unilateral and unconditional agreement to do something. So two people agree 
unconditionally and unilaterally to do something. And if a person breaks his part of the agreement, you know, when they would, what they would do is they would, they would call cutting a covenant, right? So you would take an animal and you would cut it in half. And the idea would be that if I don't do what I'm saying I'm going to do, may this happen to me also. All right, so a covenant is a kind of a, uh, an unconditional and, and uh, unilateral agreement between two people or more people to do something. For example, not to wage war with one another, or for example, to remain husband and wife for their entire lives, or so on and so forth. That's what a covenant is, sort of an unconditional agreement between at least two people to do something. God makes a covenant with Abraham in the Old Testament. This is thousands of years before Christ comes. And this covenant is explained by uh, God in Genesis chapter 17. And let's read, for example, from verses 9 through 14. Well, actually, no, let's, let's read beginning from the, from the start of the chapter. That's, that would be better. So let's start at the chapter 17, and let's read down to verse uh, 14 or whatever I said earlier. When Abram, that was his name, Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring after you through their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abram, Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant in your flesh be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. <clears throat> so God makes a promise with Abraham. I am going to be your God. I'm going to multiply you tremendously, and I'm going to bless your offspring, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. There's just this one thing you have to do. You have to be circumcised in your flesh. And everybody, every male who is a part of your household, and if you go and you buy people from the outside, for example, if you were to buy a slave, that also, that person also has to be circumcised. And if anybody's not circumcised, they're off, they're cut off from the people. So the Pharisees looked at this text, and they see how insistent God is that every person who is to be a part of the people of Abraham, uh, how insistent God is that they all be circumcised. And they think to themselves, well, of course, now in Christ, we are inheriting this promise from Abraham, right? The, the promised offspring of Abraham has come into the world. He's been born. He's died for our sins. He has received the Holy Spirit from God. He's poured out the Holy Spirit on others. Clearly, this is for us. This is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. And if these people want in on it, they have to join the covenant of Abraham. So in their mind, it made sense that people who converted to Christianity had to be circumcised just like the rest of us because Christianity for them was the fulfillment of Judaism. Being a member of the people of Abraham, that's what it was to be a Christian, right? And the blessings of Christ were only available to people like that. Everybody else is on the outside. The apostles, however, had a different form of reasoning. They reasoned very differently. Now, notice what they say. For example, if we go to Acts chapter... Let's see. Let's, so let's briefly summarize Acts chapter 10, and then we'll read from 11. What happens in Acts chapter 10? 
Peter one day is praying, and he has a vision from God. And in this vision, something like a picnic blanket with a bunch of food on it comes down from heaven. But what are the foods? It's a bunch of animals that, according to the law of Moses, are unclean. Right? Things that they're not supposed to eat. And a voice from heaven tells Peter, Peter, kill some of these animals and eat them. And Peter says, no, Lord, never has unclean food entered into my mouth. And the voice responds, what God has made clean, you know, do not declare unclean. Don't call unclean what God has made clean. And that happens three times. And as soon as Peter, as soon as the vision ends, somebody calls for Peter. He was on the roof of his house praying. And somebody calls for Peter and he says, hey, there's this guy, Cornelius, and he's sent for you. You have to go see him. Who is Cornelius? Cornelius is a Gentile who was uh, a believer in the God of the Jews. I don't think that he had been circumcised yet because he's just a Gentile and he probably attended the, the synagogue, but he believed in the God of the Jews and he performed alms and he prayed to the God of the Jews and so on. Now, Cornelius himself had an angel appear to him and say, your alms have reached up to heaven. Uh, God is going to send to you a man named Peter. You should listen to him. So both Peter and Cornelius have these spiritual encounters, so to speak, and this is the way God prepares them for this wonderful encounter. So Simon Peter goes to Cornelius' house, and he tells them, listen, I know that normally Jews should not enter into the house of Gentiles. However, God has recently taught me that he doesn't make a distinction between Jews and Gentiles the way that we do, and so therefore I'm here. Now, what did you want? And... That's basically what he says. Right, so if we look in chapter 10, verse 28, you know, Peter says to him, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. Right? What do you want then? What is this about? And Cornelius says, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa, and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. There are so many Simons in, in those days, very common name. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers among the circumcised had come, who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Let's continue reading now. Now the apostles and the brothers who were, with, who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. 
But I said, my, by no means, Lord, for nothing, uncom nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These three brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just on us, as at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Here's the important verse. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So this was the apostolic argument. Okay, The Pharisees very likely were arguing on the basis of the covenant with Abraham that everybody had to be circumcised. The apostles were arguing on the basis of their experiences with the Holy Spirit in real time. Listen, these people received the Holy Spirit while they were still Gentiles. If they have the Holy Spirit, being Gentiles, what more could we possibly put on them? Why should we add anything more to them? And this is the argument that they give also at the Council of Jerusalem. So let's turn once more to Acts 15. <clears throat> and somebody read um, verses 7 through 11. Go ahead. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved so notice how the Apostle Peter reasons. This is his understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Fundamentally, what it means to be a Christian is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to trust in him for your salvation. And this accomplishment, this faith, is something that you have by means of the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is given by Christ himself. That's what he says in Acts chapter 2. He thinks... This is what it is. This is what happened to us. This is what makes us Christians. Now, if this same thing happened to the Gentiles before they were circumcised, before they took up the law of Moses, then those things must not matter. Notice what happens. Peter is reasoning in a way that's basically like this. Once you have the Holy Spirit and you have faith in Christ and through Christ in the Father, once you are in fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, there is nothing more for you to do. You have reached the end. You're, you're there. You've arrived, so to speak. Right? Just like we say, for example, that when you maximize your, you've arrived, right? You're, you're now famous, you're, you have your PhD, you're done, you've arrived. Once you have the Holy Spirit and you believe in Christ and you pray to God and you call him your father, you've arrived. There is nothing more for you to do. There is nothing necessary for you to do. There is nothing that's lacking. The Pharisees, the Pharisaical Christians were thinking, no, you also have to be circumcised and you also have to keep the law of Moses, right? You basically have to become a Jew. In order to be in fellowship with God, you have to become a Jew. This is not the argument that Peter gives, and this is exactly the argument that uh, Paul in his letters fights against. The unity between Jew and Gentile, according to Paul, is faith in Christ, and the fact that Christ has died for us. That is what makes Jew and Gentile to be one people, their relation to Christ. It is not that Gentiles are assimilated into Judaism and they become Jews. It is that, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, through his flesh, through his sacrifice on the cross, he has made one people out of the previous two. He's made one humanity out of the previous distinction between Jews and Gentiles. And he has provided for them, through faith in him, a way that both peoples have access to God. So, in the apostolic way of thinking, in the apostolic reasoning, what matters, above everything, is for you to be in fellowship with God, through the Holy Spirit, in fellowship with the Father and the Son. Like, 
Uh, John says, for example, in 1 John, I will read this one. In 1 John chapter 1, notice what, what, what the apostle says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian, according to the apostles, according to Peter, according to Paul, according to John. What it means to be a Christian is to be in fellowship with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when you have that, there is nothing more that you need. You live in fellowship with God. You've accomplished, you've, you've arrived, you've reached the top of the mountain, and now it's just your job to live there and to stay there. The Pharisees were saying, no, 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 you need all this other stuff as well. You need to be circumcised, you need to obey the law of Moses, you need to keep the tradition of the elders, and so on. And basically what they were saying is that Christ is subordinated to the tradition of, the, of, of our religion. Whereas Paul was saying, no, all things are for Christ, right? Through him, by him, through him, and for him are all things. The Gentiles, as much as the Jews, are for Christ. It is not that Christ is for the Jews, but that the Jews are for Christ, and the Gentiles as well. So, once more, we see that the principle of the unity of the church, right, because this was a disagreement, the principle of the unity of the church is Christ. Christ is the, the thing that holds the church together. And this is how Paul also addresses the disagreements in Corinth. So let's turn once more to 1 Corinthians. Let's see how Paul considers this situation of a division, factions in the church, disagreements because of teachers, you know, the cult of personality, and so on. Let's have somebody read chapter 3, um, starting with verse 5. Go ahead. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid the foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Notice Paul's reasoning. The Corinthians were making distinctions between teachers. They were saying, I belong to Paul, I belong to Peter or Cephas, I belong to Apollos, and some of them were saying, I belong to Christ. Maybe they kind of understood the, a little better than the rest. Paul is saying, listen, what is Paul and what is Apollos? I am just somebody who came in and planted the word, right? I preached you the first time. And then later, Paul, Apollos came along and he you know, built a little bit on what I was telling you. 
But God is the one who gives you the Holy Spirit, who provides miracles, who, who forgives your sins, who sent Christ into the world, and in whom you're trusting. What, what, important does the, what importance does the messenger have? What am I, for example? What, what good am I? I am nothing. I am simply somebody who's coming here, and if God wills it, I'm here to preach the word of God to you. But if that word is going to, you know, plant, uh, you know, take root in your heart and grow into something, that's what God does. I am merely an occasion for the work of God. By preaching the, uh, by preaching the gospel, anybody who preaches at a, at a church or on the street or wherever is merely offering an occasion for God to work through the Holy Spirit. So that means that the teachers don't matter. They're not very much. What Paul says in uh, chapter 4, verse 1, this is how one should regard us, servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Right? All I am here is to share with you the mysteries of God. That's what Paul says. And I'm a servant of Christ. I am nothing important by myself. All the importance that I have is who I work for, the person whom I'm serving. And so, once more, in the situation of disunity, the message of the apostles, just like Peter at the, Gospel, at the Council of Jerusalem and Paul here in the letter to the Corinthians, the way that they deal with situations of disunity and disagreement and difference is to point back to Christ and to emphasize the centrality of Christ for everything. Christ is the one who is important here. God and Christ are the ones who are important according to Paul here. Not Apollos, not Cephas, not Paul. So also, what is important is not that you be circumcised according to the tradition of uh, Abraham and that you belong to the covenant and so on. That was the argument that the apostles were giving. What is important is that you are saved by the grace of Christ and that Christ has given you also the Holy Spirit, which he gave to the apostles. The fact that Christ shows his control, his, uh, his uh, omnipotence, his independence relative to any particular human being, mere human being, rather, shows that Christ is all-powerful and we serve him. We don't have a claim on him, we don't control him. Christ, you know, for example, uh, children, you know, have a will that is independent of their parents, right? You all know this, I'm sure. You've learned this over time, right? And you also were a lesson to, uh, you also were a lesson to your own parents in that respect at some point. You know, and if God wills it and we have children, I will learn this point myself. I, Lord knows that I taught my parents that I have a will of my own and that's not necessarily their will. Notice what happens. We have our way of thinking and we, we think, you know what, it's just obvious, given what God says in Genesis, that if the Gentiles are going to be Christians like the rest of us, they have to be circumcised. It's clear, look at what he says there. But Christ shows that he does not simply do whatever we think he does. He is on his own. He's a free person. He has his own will. And he's sovereign. He, you know, Christ says, Christ does not say to the apostles, all authority on heaven and on earth was given to you, but to me. So that means that Christ is the one who gives the command and he tells us what to do and we obey him. But he does not necessarily obey us and he does not necessarily act in exactly the way that we think. This is what happened with the Gentile converts. They received the Holy Spirit even though nothing in their Jewish way of thinking would have prepared them for that. That's why it was a shock for them. They thought that if everybody's going to participate in these promises, they have to belong to the Jewish people like the rest of us. They have to be circumcised, obey the law of Moses. But it happened to the Gentiles while they were still Gentiles. And so Peter and Paul and the apostles understand, oh, God does not make a difference between us anymore. Something new has happened. And what's important is Christ. Not Moses, not Abraham, not the law, not the Pharisees, not the tradition of the elders, but what is important is Christ and our submission to Christ uh, and the fact that we receive everything from Christ. Now, the same thing is true for the creed. What does the creed do? Okay, we will talk more about this over the course of the next nine weeks, but the creed is a reminder of the centrality of Christ in our religion because the creed tells us who Christ is and what he taught. It tells us exactly who he is, uh, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and so on. It tells us who Christ is, and it tells us also what he taught, that there is one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, that there is one Lord Jesus, or that there is one, one Lord Jesus Christ, that there is a Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, that there is one Catholic and Apostolic Church, that there's one baptism for the remission of sins, that the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets, that there's a resurrection of the dead and a life of the world to come. The creed is nothing other but the summary of who Christ is and what he taught. And so the principle of unity of the church, again, once more is Christ. And what we are doing in the creed, 
We are not taking something that is from outside of the Bible and adding it alongside the Bible. We are not clinging to a tradition of men rather than to the Word of God. We are simply declaring in a very succinct and useful summary what is the teaching of God in Scripture. It's about Christ, and what did Christ teach us? That there's one God, that there's one Son, that there's one Holy Spirit, that there's one Church, one faith, one baptism, and so on. Uh, so this is my brief discussion of why the creed. Why the creed? Because from the very beginning, Christianity has been marked by difference and disagreement, and the creed helps us to think back to the essentials, to the, the very most important points, the, one, the things that we believe more than everything, more than anything else, and which serve as the foundation for our beliefs. And the creed also is the point of unity between us. We are all able to partake of that one bread in the Eucharist because we all believe the same things. We are all here in faith, uh, out of faith in Jesus Christ. And we've all said the creed together. We all agree with the creed. We all agree on the same things. We are all a part of the same family in that respect. So um, in the next nine weeks, we're going to be going over the creed. Now we just talk about why the creed. My point is that the creed summarizes very succinctly the teaching of Christ and the essential truths of the Christian religion. Beginning next week, we're going to go over the creed, not quite line by line, but roughly line by line, beginning especially with, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And I will be talking about why Christianity teaches that God exists, why do Christians believe that God exists, how can we know that God exists, uh, and addressing questions related to that. So we'll see you next week.